Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hey, motherfuckies and motherfuckettes. Uh, wow, that's not how I should introduce this. It uh, Anyway, hello, everybody. Robert here, uh, and this is our last week of... Uh, uh, what you might call them, rerun episodes. We are still on vacation here at Cool Zone, um, having a great time. Um, actually, not on vacation. We were on vacation, but this is the week where I have to write so that we can catch up and have episodes for you all in the new year. But, uh, you know, because I have one more week of of blessed uh, relative freedom, Here's here's another fucking rerun. Enjoy it. I love you. Welcome back to Behind the Bastards. I'm Robert Evans, and this is part two of our episode on Kaiser Wilhelm II. Um, now, before we get into the episode, uh, because I, I think it's important that you know about the bastardry uh, being practiced by the host of this show, I need to tell everyone that Jamie Loftus is dipping popcorn into salad dressing like a goddamn monster. I got <laughs> fucking... Is that what you're doing? Okay, first of all, yes, that is what I'm doing. Second of all, I got dragged the last time I was on this show because I mentioned that I dipped bagels in ketchup and there was a I lot I said that was fine. I'm okay with the popcorn dipping into dressing. I am you not are, okay with the popcorn dipping. Yeah, I fully dipped support you because I know you, I think you that's have a that sin. You, you have like taste buds that need more. I need I you know, need I, yeah, oh right. Yeah, yeah. I, I have um no I have poor people no. taste buds. So I hope I hope very desperately, Jamie, that mm-hmm. this makes you less judgmental of the Kaiser, because I firmly believe that the, the millions he got killed in the trenches of Europe and you dipping your popcorn into salad dressing are equivalent crimes. They're, they're okay, <laughs> sir. I oh, it's first of this all, this is say, your battle of the Somme. <laughs> this is not ideal. I would prefer to dip popcorn in soy sauce. There's no soy sauce here. I go for salad dressing. Dipping popcorn in soy sauce is your verdun. Here's the thing. I like to make dry food wet. I can't explain why. I'm sure there's a very fucked up motivation behind it. But when a food is dry, I'm like, let's moisten this up. Let's see what Horrible. happens. 
good. Horrible. It's good. Horrible. I've it's never good. been so proud to be your friend, Jamie. Thank you so much. It actually, I, I'm, I'm, I feel bad because I'm sure the salad dressing is stinky, but I, no. But ne- nevertheless, On she board. persisted. Yeah, there you go. Live your truth, baby. Mm. Does this speaking make you of, uncomfortable, Robert? <laughs> I was just going to say, speaking of living your truth, let's mm-hmm. talk about what happens when a profoundly damaged young man becomes the king of Germany and then gets a chance to live his truth. I've got his birth chart up. Well, let's figure this out. Let's do it. What does it say about uh, people of his astrological sign well, leading the Imperial German military? Well, um, here's the thing. I did his natal chart, but that's a little too complicated. What everyone needs to know is he's an Aquarius, and uh, Aquarian leaders, you know, they're positive traits. They're open-minded, right? They're creative. He was an artist, right? They're free-spirited. Negative traits, really bad stuff across the board for leaders. Impulsive, unpredictable, inconsistent, extreme, and stubborn. So, you know, it was foretold. I wouldn't call him open-minded in any way, but (laughs) a lot of that tracks. You know what's crazy? I feel like I'll get dragged more for invoking astrology than I will for dipping popcorn in salad dressing. They're both horrible crimes against humanity. You know what? To each their own. (laughs) I'm living a very vile life over here. Now, the Reich that Kaiser Wilhelm inherited uh, had been built and largely managed by Otto von Bismarck. And above all else, Bismarck wanted peace. The system of alliances he crafted for Germany were essentially, again, like I said, that era's version of mutually assured destruction. Starting a war with Germany would mean fighting with Russia, too, and Russia controlled a sixth of the planet's surface. This was a pretty good system while it lasted. Bismarck was a, a, a monster, but not a dumb man. Um, knew what he was doing. Yeah. But Wilhelm came to power with distinct and probably agonizing memories of his father's martial prowess and military victories. He had been insecure his entire life because of his arm and the complete lack of praise he received from Hinspeter. Likewise, his wife and Bismarck had succeeded in inculcating a deep antipathy of his parents and of England in him. Kaiser Wilhelm II, A Concise Life, describes the mindset all of this resulted in once the young man came to power and was given the world's most powerful land army. Quote, Prince Wilhelm's mindset on the threshold of succeeding to the throne was characterized by bellicose ambition and contempt for parliaments and political parties, indeed for civilians in general. Britain must be destroyed, was his watchword, and he was already developing a passion for the idea of a strong German navy. But Paris, too, had to be destroyed, he railed. Wilhelm was, naturally, very much in favor of war and hopes it will break out soon, General Valdersee noted with glee on 25th January 1887. Under the latter's influence, the prince also advocated war with Russia. That young man wants war with Russia and would like to draw his sword straight away if he could. Chancellor Bismarck recorded with dismay in 1888. So, and to be clear, he doesn't come to power until he is nearly 30 years old. Um, Yeah. Is that right? So at this point, we're like, this is no longer... 29, yeah. Yeah, he's not a boy anymore. a juvenile young boy who wants to have sex with his mother's hand. This is a grown-ass petty man who wants to have sex with his who mother's hand? Who wants to have sex with his mother's hand, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> now, 
Bismarck was also deeply concerned about the young emperor's almost violent hatred of Jewish people. This was the result of the influence of one Adolf von Stoker, the court chaplain. Now, Stoker was a member of the Christian Socialist Movement, an anti-Semitic far-right party that also hated Catholics. Uh Wilhelm's parents and grandmother had all been disgusted by discrimination and had pushed to end it in their country. But Wilhelm wanted to blaze a new, much more racist path. And he was supported in this by the Prussian officer corps, who were also thoroughly bigoted. The Kaiser and his new allies wanted to keep the German race pure, stop Jewish immigration, and remove Jews from positions in schools and public office. Before his ascension, Bismarck had rebuked the prince for his support of anti-Semitism. Mm. This sparked a passive-aggressive battle between the two men. From van der Kist's biography of Wilhelm, When Bismarck had articles published in the official press taking the religious conservatives to task for using Wilhelm, the latter wrote petulantly to Hinspeter that he did not deserve such treatment. As for the chancellor's sake, he had, for years, locked myself out of my parents' house. At about the same time, Wilhelm drafted a proclamation to the German princes, which was to be published in the event of his accession. Bismarck told him to burn it. Sulking, Wilhelm replied that when he came to the throne, he would have all Jewish influence over the press stopped. Told that this would be a violation of the Constitution, Wilhelm said, grandly that they would have to get rid of the constitution as well sounds like someone we know yeah yeah (laughs) if you look up kaiser wilhelm donald trump there's like a dozen different articles that different people have written about similarities between the two men um i think for one thing i think that's i don't entirely agree with that for a number of reasons one of them is that wilhelm is an infinitely more sympathetic figure than donald trump (laughs) right um but they, there are some similarities, and that that uh, that would definitely be one of them. Oh wow! There's a whole there's a whole goddamn New Yorker article. Yeah, about there's it. a ton of articles about the similarities between the two men. Um, well, I'm a again, genius. Yeah, Wilhelm was fond of making these sorts of grand threats and pronouncements, like the one he made against Russia and England. Fortunately, they rarely resulted in anything. He was easy to talk down, and he was liable to balk at the last minute from acting on any of his rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But the rhetoric itself had a damaging effect on international relations. Wilhelm deeply worried the rest of Europe when he made this pronouncement to the people of Germany after taking the crown. We were born to each other, I and the army. We were born for each other and will cleave indissolubly to each other, whether it be the will of God to send us to calm or storm. You will soon swear fealty and submission to me, and I promise ever to bear in mind from the world above the eyes of my forefathers look down on me, and that I shall one day have to stand accountable for them for the glory and honor of the army. Also, why can't you have sex with your mother's hand? That should be legal. (laughs) TTYL Wilhelm. (laughs) Now, the Kaiser had no real military experience and no aptitude whatsoever for warfare, but he felt that he had to portray himself as a mighty warlord, in part because his father and grandfather had been mighty warlords. Mm -hmm. That was kind of Prussia's whole deal. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. to compensate for being just a dude with a bad arm, Wilhelm collected an absurd amount of military uniforms. His cousin, the Queen of Romania, wrote that he changed his uniform several times a day as a smart woman changes her gown. Now, so Vanderkiss book. I know oh. it's about to get embarrassinger Cringe because Vanderkiss book goes into detail about just how extensive Wilhelm's wardrobe really was. Okay. 
In addition to his much-cherished foreign uniforms, he had a full one for every Prussian regiment, over 300 alone, to say nothing of those of Bavaria, Saxony, and Württemberg, as well as naval and marine uniforms. All had their own individual badges, sashes, caps, helmets, epaulets, shoulder points, belts, swords, lances, and firearms. The resulting wardrobe and armory had to be housed in a hall containing huge wardrobes, with a camardiner on duty from morning to night to select the shortest possible notice any outfit he might require. According to Anne Topham, his daughter's governess, he cut a fine figure in military dress, but in civilian clothes the effect was completely lacking. Many German gentlemen lost much appearance when out of uniform, but none to the extent that their emperor did. He no longer had any shred of dignity, and, curiously enough, that charm of manner was also bereft of its influence and merged into what was an offensive, wearisome buffoonery. He was wise, she added, not to appear before his subjects except in uniform." Oh God! I like how he's he's just like how could I possibly not be a war hero? Look at all my shirts! Like you're like yeah, that's not how that works. Pause. Pizza's here. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're we're back. They received pizza in the room, and Jamie and I are talking about uh, all the articles comparing Kaiser Wilhelm to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things I noted is that like nobody ever really defends Kaiser Wilhelm. One of my one of my weird hobbies is I like to go on YouTube and I like to find collections of Imperial Prussian and Imperial British and Imperial uh, Russian. Uh, like court music, like military marches and stuff like that. I and I like to read love. the comments. That's very weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like to read the comments because the comments are filled with monarchists, with people who like desperately want to return to monarchy in Europe. And they're all the saddest, dumbest people in the entire world. And it's, it's, <laughs> I like to read their arguments between each other. But nobody ever defends the Kaiser. <laughs> no, that's good. That takes. I mean, commenters will defend almost anything. That's Im- yeah. I, I like to go to the YouTubes of like. Okay, not the. Okay, what am I saying? Okay, where you're like looking for a specific song, and so you yeah. search it on YouTube, and then you accidentally scroll down to the comments, and it's like something that's very depressing out of nowhere. I forget what song I was looking up recently, yeah. but the top comment was like, "My husband died to this song, and and it's nice that it's on YouTube.com, and it was like a dance song." But anyways, I love commenting. There's a story there. Where's the Wilhelm hive? Where's the Will hive? Yeah, they uh they are not not buzzing. Um because he was really bad at his job. And even the dumbest people in the world, monarchists, can recognize that. <laughs> now, as his reign began, the Kaiser fell under the influence of a number of bad apples. Uh, there was the anti-Semite Stoker, who we already talked about. There was also Count Alfred von Waldersee, the deputy chief of the German general staff. Now, he was a rabidly pro-war nutfuck who supported an immediate attack against both France and Russia. Um, like this was his advice. We just invade them both simultaneously right now. Um, now when Bismarck heard about the growing friendship between the Kaiser and Waldersee, he is said to have cried, alas, my poor grandchildren. So Bismarck being a smart guy, pretty instantly realizes like, oh shit, this dude is going to plunge the whole continent into a stupid, stupid war. And Um, boy, was he right. He was not wrong. Like I said, Bismarck is a very, is a visionary. He's a, he's a bad man, but he's a visionary Uh, and he clearly saw what was going to happen. (laughs) I hate when the bad people are smart as well. Uh, Yeah. And they're more effectively bad. Yeah. I mean, in Bismarck's defense, like he was just kind of kind of a sociopath but he wasn't bad and like his goals weren't dominate europe and put all the jews in camp his goals were ensure germany a place of prominence among nations and stop a massive european war and he did gross and manipulative things to ensure that but he wasn't trying to like make the world worse he wasn't doing you know? chaos for chaos's sake yeah right. yeah he wasn't like a yeah yeah his I'll goals were that. like uh, he just wants things to not break into a war and he wants germany to be popular Okay. Well, now, he failed. Um, yeah, he definitely did, didn't succeed in the long run. <laughs> now, Count Eulenburg, the Kaiser's best friend and probable crush, also led to the Kaiser's break with Bismarck. The Kaiser demanded that uh, Bismarck promote the Count to the position of Prussian envoy in Munich, which was a very important job. Now, Bismarck balked at giving this job to an inexperienced friend of the king's. The conflict between the two men very much embodied a greater conflict within German governance. 
A large chunk of the country, including Bismarck, wanted Germany to be a proper nation state with rules and laws and checks and balances. They weren't Democrats, and I don't mean that in like the American political sense. I mean like sure. pro-democracy sense. Right. At least not all of them. But they didn't want an absolute monarchy where the Kaiser's will determined everything. Right. The Kaiser, on the other hand, didn't really see why other people should have a say in how he ran Germany. Now... Bismarck warned the Kaiser that filling government posts with his buddies would lead to a situation wherein he couldn't actually trust any of his ministers to give him good information because they'd all be toadies at worst or his friends at best. And in any case, they wouldn't be trustworthy to actually speak the truth to him when the truth needed speaking. The Kaiser ignored Bismarck, and over the next few years, the positions of the ministers and the Reich Chancellor, Bismarck's job, were demoted to what Roll calls royal lackeys. Oh, so, boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Throughout 1888 and 1889, Wilhelm and Bismarck's relationship degraded. Things came to a head in 1889 when a bunch of miners in the Ruhr district went on strike for better working conditions. Now, here, Hins Peter had what you would actually say is a positive influence. As odd as it sounds, Kaiser Wilhelm instantly sided with the striking workers against their employers. Mm. Um, this caused another rift between him and Bismarck because Bismarck's, again, a piece of shit. Um, it's a and rare the chancellor good didn't, move. By... Yeah, the, the chancellor didn't give a fuck about the workers and obviously cared mostly about steel production and his friends who ran the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Kaiser stood for the working people. Uh, and on May 12th, he charged into a meeting of the Prussian Ministry of State and declared that Bismarck was wrong for not acceding to their demands All and right. declared the workers were his subjects whom he had to look after all right go yeah off, no this wilhelm. is like yeah this what this is good mm-hmm. now wilhelm got his way on the rear strike further frustrating the reich chancellor in the summer of 1889 he took his yacht out for his first cruise across scandinavian waters this became a yearly tradition one he kept up for decades on his first outing he brought Waldersee and Eulenburg with him The latter was, at least, a sane person who didn't support wars of aggression with the rest of the world. But Waldersee was a racist nutfuck, and during their vacation, he convinced the Kaiser that Bismarck was Jew-ridden and had been conned into giving control of the Reich's monetary policy to a bunch of Jews. Wait, and this 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 is his crush? No, no, no. His crush is a a pretty reasonable guy. This is that racist general who wants him to invade the entire world. God, the names are so confusing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. There's a lot. Waldersee is the racist general. Eulenberg is his crush. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so Waldersee convinces the Kaiser that Bismarck had been conned into giving control of the Reich's monetary policy to a bunch of Jews. This was a lie, but reality had very little influence on the Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Now, this month-long annual cruise around the coast of Norway became one of the Kaiser's favorite things. And I have to read you Vanderkist's description of it because it sounds like the worst time you could have on a boat. <laughs> The annual cruise, or Nordlandreis, with its exclusively male company, allowed him, the Kaiser, to indulge in practical jokes and boyish tomfoolery, like applying a foot to the backside of elderly aides-de-camp engaged in physical exercises. Its purpose was originally to give him a month-long break from court life, but in due course his doctor decided it was counterproductive, as he was physically and mentally upset by the long voyage, diet, and exhaustion of various kinds, and it did him more harm than good. His entourage, soon tired of these cruises, bored if not repelled by the juvenile atmosphere and behavior of the Kaiser and some of his officers, who loathed every childish prank and moment themselves, but were too sycophantic to say so. God, it sounds you like go in a- <laughs> it reminds me of like that documentary where Jim Carrey goes method, where you're like, oh, he's just a tyrant. He's been waiting his whole life to get people trapped in Ugh. this in this enclosed setting to be horrible. Cool. 
Well, I'm glad yeah. they did pranks on the set of his yacht. You want to you want to you want to go on a month long prank cruise with the king boy? <laughs> with the yeah, with the king boy who like has oh god, imagine just having to go uh, on a cruise with him and all of his demons. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> wild. I'll guarantee you, he never didn't have an erection, and he never knew what it was for. <laughs> yeah, that means like, he's just walking around with a full erection all the time. Like, do you guys know what this is? <laughs> like, just kicking people in the butt. I think <laughs> I'm he's laughing hard as a rock, kicking old people around. What? Uh, okay, well, uh, he's officially, um, you know. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. he's just a bad. He's a bad man. He's a creatively bad man in this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really punishing yeah. everyone around him in very specific ways. Yeah. My now, in God. January of 1890, Wilhelm told his crown council that he would celebrate his 31st birthday with two new proclamations, one to protect working people and limit their labor hours, and another to call an international summit in Berlin to improve labor conditions across the continent. So that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. All right. It's, it's, labor crusader. I'm, <laughs> I'm very surprised that he is like gunning for labor like this. He, well, you know, one of the good things about Hintz Peter is he had taken him around to all these factories and mines and stuff when he was a kid. So the Kaiser had seen like how tough life was for working people. And mm-hmm. he wasn't, he's not like a sociopath or anything. He had empathy for these people. So he did care about people. Like he's not a monster. Um, He does monstrous things, but he's not a monster. Now, Bismarck thought that the Kaiser's love of the working people was super dumb. The two fought over this, and another fight broke out in March of 1890 when Bismarck entered into negotiations with the leader of the Center Party. He's like, Doc, why do you care about the poor? It's such a bad fucking look. They're the poors, man. Come on. The poors. What the fuck? What are you going to get out of that? So Bismarck enters into negotiations with the leader of the Center Party, a guy named Winthorst, and their goal is to get rid of bigoted anti-Catholic legislation in Germany. So again, Bismarck like is trying to fight against discrimination here. So none of these sides are are simple here. Right. Bismarck hates working people, but also hates discrimination. The Kaiser fights for the working man, but gets furious about removing this anti-Catholic legislation because he's a bigot. Um, so they're just like at a pre- stalemate. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he's particularly pissed that this meeting between Bismarck and uh, the leader of the center party had been organized by Bismarck's banker, who was a Jewish man. Now, to the Kaiser, this was confirmation that the Jews were secretly running his empire via Uh Bismarck. God damn it. Okay. Next, according to Kaiser Wilhelm II, A Concise Life. Early in the morning of 15 March 1890, there took place one of the most highly charged scenes ever played out in Berlin's center of government, the Wilhelmstrasse. Kaiser Wilhelm II summoned the 75-year-old Reich Chancellor from his bed and upbraided him for receiving Winthorst. He went on to complain that Bismarck had dug out a dusty old cabinet order of 1852 that prevented the monarch from receiving ministers except in the presence of the minister-president. He preemptorily demanded that the order be rescinded, which Bismarck refused to do. Wilhelm later recounted that Bismarck had become so violent towards him that he was afraid the chancellor would throw the inkstand at my head. After this dramatic quarrel, Valdersi urged the Kaiser, in the presence of the chief of the military cabinet, to sack Bismarck forthwith. The present state of affairs was quite untenable, he argued, and moreover, the chancellor was too closely allied with the Jews. Bismarck first sent Honk, his military leader, and then the chief of the civil cabinet, Hermann von Lucanus, to the chancellor, ordering him to hand in his resignation, which Bismarck finally did on 18th March, 1890. 
If Valdersi, as one can safely assume, expected to take Bismarck's place, he was in for a bitter disappointment. That same evening, Wilhelm II announced to the commanding generals assembled in the Berlin Schloss that, in order to remain master of the situation, he had to issue an order to the chancellor insisting that he submit. So the Kaiser accepted Bismarck's uh, uh, letter of, uh, 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 you know, he's retire- his retirement and made a guy named Caprivi, who was a lickspittle, um, you know, the, the new chancellor. So yeah. he, he forces out the guy who, like the, the political cartoons in Europe at this time are like show the Kaiser on a boat kicking Bismarck, the pilot of the boat, off of the ship. Um, and that's generally how this is seen. Germany has like jettisoned its pilot in favor of the dumbest monarch in Europe. The uh, man, what a choice. What a choice. Yeah. All right. It's not great. It's not great. I mean, there's no winning scenario, but they did seem to choose the losinger of the two. They definitely chose the losingest scenario. The losinger. Yeah. But you you know what's not the losing scenario, Jamie? Tell me. The products and services that support this show. Oh, it's true. I love each and every one, mm-hmm. especially the dick pills. <laughs> the dick pills especially and you know one of the behind the bastards guarantees is that no more than seven percent of our sponsors contributed to the outbreak of hostilities in world war one wow okay so that, that's that, a guarantee no other podcast will give you that's a little wiggle room that's nice yeah that's yeah, nice yeah up to seven percent okay i'll crunch those numbers and then cancel mm-hmm. you later <laughs> <laughs> all right here's some ads products Now, with Bismarck out, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was the unquestioned chief power in Germany. And mm-hmm. this was not a good thing. Wilhelm was bad at every aspect of the job, particularly diplomacy. And he, he was had been that, for years is the most frustrating part. he had part. been for years. This was not yeah. a shock to anyone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, he was convinced that his relation to the other crowned heads of Europe and his personal charisma would allow him to negotiate well with other nations. The New Yorker summarizes his talent for this part of the job thusly. Quote, he called the diminutive King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy the dwarf in front of the king's own entourage. He called Prince, later Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria, Ferdinando Nasso on account of his beaky nose and spread rumors that he was a hermaphrodite. Since Wilhelm was notably indiscreet, people always... uh, Yeah. Since Wilhelm was notably indiscreet, people always knew what he was saying behind their backs. Ferdinand had his revenge. After a visit to Germany in 1909, during which the Kaiser slapped him on the bottom in public and then refused to apologize, Apologize, Ferdinand awarded a valuable arms contract that had been promised to the Germans to a French company instead. Mm-hmm. One of the many things that Wilhelm was convinced he was brilliant at, despite all evidence to the contrary, was personal diplomacy, fixing foreign policy through one-on-one meetings with other European monarchs and statesmen. This is one of the reasons people compare him to Trump a lot. In 1890, he let lapse a long-standing defensive agreement with Russia, the German Empire's vast and sometimes threatening eastern neighbor. He judged wrongly that Russia was so desperate for German goodwill that he could keep it dangling. Instead, Russia immediately made an alliance with Germany's western neighbor and enemy, France. I don't like a single negotiation. That's nasty. (laughs) It's bad. Wipe it. Wilhelm decided he would charm and manipulate Tsar Nicholas II, a ninny and a whimperer, according to Wilhelm, fit (laughs) only to grow turnips, into abandoning the alliance. In 1897, Nicholas told Wilhelm to get lost. The German-Russian alliance withered. So he comes to power and within a couple of years, scraps the alliance with Russia and Russia immediately allies with France, which means that 
Germany is now surrounded on both sides by enemies. Mm-hmm. So he went from Germany's entire flank to the east being totally protected by a military ally to the nation being surrounded. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. That is, he's so bad at this. Yeah. It's crazy how and it like the speed at which he's bad at it too. Like it's yeah, he's, not even a slow burn, like, oh, I do something shitty every like he's just like expeditiously ruining everything. No, he is a more stupid, faster guy. Um, Very much so. The worst kind of person. Okay. Now, one good thing you can say for the Kaiser is that he was better than most modern governments at promoting gay people to positions of high authority. The downside of this is that these guys were all his friends and sycophants, and he almost certainly had no idea they were gay. His best friend, Eulenberg, of course, occupied high positions in the Reich, but there were too many rumors about him for him to be made chancellor. There were a number of, like, there were, like, trials and, like, news stories that would come out. Um, So the Kaiser promoted a dude named Bulow for the job. A letter Bulow wrote in July 1896 shows that things within the German government had degraded exactly the way Bismarck predicted they would. Quote, I would be a different kind of chancellor for my predecessors. Bismarck was a power in his own right, a Pippin, a Richelieu. Caprivi and Hohenlohe regarded or regard themselves as the representatives of the government and to a certain extent of the parliament in relation to his majesty. I would regard myself as the executive tool of his majesty. So to speak, his political chief of staff with me personal rule in the good sense would really begin. I'm picturing this as like an Instagram caption. <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, Bulow would have been tweeting sycophantically about his boss in this modern era, but he's like, he comes to power and immediately promises, I'm going to do everything the Kaiser says and not represent the rest of the government in any way. Like, that's his promise. Wow. And he thinks that's a good thing. Now, sure. in an 1898 letter to his mother, Kaiser Wilhelm exulted in his ability to gradually wear down the government of Germany into Leave acting as just alone. an extension of his ego. Uh-huh. Forever and ever, he exulted in a letter to his mother in 1898, no. there is only one real emperor in the world, and that is the German, regardless of his person and qualities, but by right of a thousand years tradition, and his chancellor has to obey. Oh, God. Leave your... Uh, uh, if nothing else, leave your poor mother alone. Now, Eulenberg, who'd put Bulow up for the job, because Eulenberg, there were too many rumors about him being gay, wrote the new chancellor this advice for working under Kaiser Wilhelm. And again, I have to remind you, this man loves Wilhelm. Right. Quote, well, I mean, yeah. Wilhelm II takes everything personally. Only personal arguments make any impression on him. He likes to give advice to others, but is unwilling to take it himself. He cannot stand boredom. Ponderous, stiff, excessively thorough people get on his nerves and cannot get anywhere with him. Wilhelm II wants to shine and decide everything himself. What he wants to do himself, unfortunately, often goes wrong. He loves glory. He is ambitious and jealous. To get him to accept an idea, one has to pretend that the idea came from him. Never forget that his magic Majesty needs praise from time to time. He is the sort of person who becomes sullen unless he is given recognition from time to time by someone of importance. You will always accomplish whatever you wish so long as you do not admit to express your appreciation when his majesty deserves it. He is grateful for it like a good, clever child. If one remains silent when he deserves recognition, he eventually sees malevolence in it. We too will always carefully observe the boundaries of flattery. I mean, who among us has not worked for someone exactly like this? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Just Absolutely. Like, yeah. I was working for someone like this two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hollywood is 30% people it's like this. 30% Wilhelm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Oh God! I mean, but the fact that that's like one of his closest friends. He's like, yeah. yeah, he's an absolute nightmare. He's the worst person I know, but also he's my closest friend. So you know, and I love him. Yeah, and the health insurance is great. So put up with yeah. it. Yeah. Now, Wilhelm had a bad reputation for basically siding with whatever the last person he talked to had said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since a number of his generals were warmongering racists, this was problematic. In 1896, the Kaiser impulsively sent a congratulatory telegram to Paul Kruger of the Transvaal Republic, South Africa, for his victory over a British raiding party. This is like in the Boer War period. Now, the Boers are a Germanic people, and there was great sympathy for them within the Reich. But England was the world's preeminent naval power. And by sending this message, the Kaiser provoked rage from a country he really needed to keep on his side since he'd already alienated Russia. Um, So that's not a great move. Like reaching out to the enemy of the greatest naval power in the world and being like, good job killing some of their guys. (laughs) Like it doesn't play well in England. (laughs) Again, petty, petty, dumb, petty, dumb. Ugh. Now, there there were numerous other insults and slights like that. He was Kaiser for like 26 years before the war, and it, it, this shit happened constantly. I'm just going to, you know, I'm giving you a couple of examples so you know the sorts of shit he was up to. Right. Bit by bit, Wilhelm alienated basically all of Germany's allies. His advisors and ministers, men like Bülow and Eulenburg, proved unable to do anything but praise the Kaiser and hope to calm him down and reduce his impulsive swings. They were often unsuccessful. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion in China led to the the capture of a number of Europeans, including Germans in the city of Peking. Most of Europe's great powers dispatched soldiers to deal with the situation. The Kaiser was late in doing so, and his men arrived too late to participate in the fight. But before they left, the Kaiser insisted on addressing them personally with a speech that made him the laughingstock of Europe. It ended like this. Should you encounter the enemy, he will be defeated. No quarter will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited. Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under their king Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend. May the name German be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever again dare to look cross-eyed at a German. Now, you've heard of like how the Huns, like Germany was referred to as the Huns in like World War I propaganda by the British and the Americans and stuff. Mm-hmm. This speech is why this it, the Hun speech is what people call it. So they were just getting they were just like roasting Wilhelm yeah. indirectly. Exactly, but pretty directly actually. Yeah, I guess that's not um, even a subtweet. Because <laughs> like this is seen as really silly. For one thing, like beating China in this period was not something to brag about. Like the European powers had machine guns and like modern battleships and military tactics, mm-hmm. and the Chinese military just did not. Um, and so it wasn't really a fight. Um, Also, the Germans arrived too late to participate in the fight. So this was both seen as like a man child pretending to be a warrior, but it was also seen as deeply worrying by the crowned heads of Europe, the other leaders of the European powers, because the Kaiser had Europe's most powerful army. And it's not comforting to hear him say this shit. It's like somebody with a huge gun collection talking about how he could carry out a school shooting if he wanted to. Oh, that's always You'd be like, oh, fuck. Yeah, this this is a problem. Maybe I should call the police. But of course, there's no police to call on the kaiser no don't you love when someone's above the law and therefore yeah. thousands of people have to die <laughs> uh, millions but yeah Mil- oh I'm, um, so, I'm so sorry yeah, yeah. millions millions okay. <laughs> nations worth okay yeah. <laughs> 
Now, speaking of the army, they were the only ones who really gained in power during Wilhelm's reign. He had a habit of promoting generals to ministerial positions. He liked being surrounded and consulted by them. His appointees included General Alfred von Schlieffen, a military tactician who developed an elaborate plan for how Germany could beat both Russia and France in a European war. Wasn't it like now, a five-year plan? It was, or what, what was the duration of the plan? No, it was, no, it was very quick. It, it was, was very oh, it was supposed to happen in a matter of months. So basically, the idea was that you've got, you're surrounded now because Wilhelm fucked up and made Russia an enemy. Love. So Germany has to fight both Russia and France at the same time. So Schlieffen's idea was that the the vast majority of the Germans' army, like two or three million men, would invade and conquer Paris very quickly. Um, and then, you know, a small chunk of the German army would hold off the Russian army in the east until the rest of the army could be freed up and sent by rail to go fight the Russians. The only way for them to beat France quickly was to bypass France's fortresses and like uh, like defensive line on the German French border and invade through Belgium. Now, this okay. would necessitate Germany break like basically Ge Belgium's a neutral power. So this would uh, like necessitate Germany launch a war of aggression against a neutral power. And Britain had an agreement with Belgium that they would defend them from this sort of thing. So mm -hmm. basically, the nature of the Schlieffen plan essentially guaranteed that Britain would get involved in a war between France and Germany. OK, um, so it's not a great plan. It's a very detailed no. and elaborate plan. But it's not a good idea. And he it's just only like wrote necessary. a medium.com article. He's like, all right, here's yeah. what I want to do. And everyone's like, um, well, at least yeah. he came up with a plan. I mean, you could argue that it was the best possible plan in the impossible situation that Doesn't the Kaiser had put Germany plan. in. Yeah. No, no, no. But like if you like if you have to try to beat Russia a sixth of the world and France, the second largest military power in Europe simultaneously, there's mm -hmm. really no good way to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> and in, in Schlieffen's defense, this actually came very close to working. Like Germany almost won World War One very early on. Okay. Um, they didn't and brave everything you, else that happened brave happened. Brave of you to come but. to Schlieffen's defense in this way. <laughs> It's more just pointing out, like, I think it's important to note how powerful the German army was. The German army essentially on its own, because Austria-Hungary was useless and their allies, the Italians, turned their backs on them almost immediately. So Germany mm. on their own conquered a huge chunk of France, beat Russia, beat Romania, and conquered the majority, like, almost won a war against the entire world. And that's the force that this guy inherits, this, like, young man with anger problems. Yeah. So it's 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 less like a guy with a gun collection and a guy with a nuke collection. Um, like, he's, he, th that's the power of the army that he, he gets as birthright. Right. Which maybe means you shouldn't get armies by birthright. <laughs> like, now there's, now there's something to think about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's a bad, it's a bad idea. So, basically, the Schlieffen plan means that by ne necessity, there would be no defensive wars for Germany under, uh, the Kaiser. Mm. So another general close to the Kaiser was Helmuth von Moltke. Moltke was one of the relatively few people who was brave enough to criticize Kaiser Wilhelm to his face. The cause of his ire in the first case was the annual German war games, particularly the fact that every year they were arranged so that the Kaiser would win no matter what he did. Von Moltke was convinced that the next European war would be an enormous bloody affair, consisting of millions of men and entire nations at arms. He did not think set-piece war games like Germany practiced were adequately preparing her for this sort of conflict. Fair. And I'm going to quote a passage now from Von Moltke's memoirs. Mm -hmm. 
And this is him talking to the Kaiser. And when I now look at the strategic war game plans which are put before your majesty year after year, regularly ending with the taking prisoner of enemy armies consisting of five or six hundred thousand men, and that too after only a few days of operations, I cannot avoid the feeling that this in no way meets the conditions of war. I cannot engage in such war games. Your majesty knows yourself that the armies led by you regularly encircle the enemy, and in this way allegedly end the war with one blow. In my opinion, these results can only be brought about by forcefully distorting circumstances in such a way that the basic principle that the war game sh- should be a study for real war and should take into account all the friction and obstacles that arise in war is not met. This kind of war game in which, to a certain extent, your majesty's enemy is at your mercy, with his hands tied from the outset, must give rise to false ideas which can only be pernicious when war comes. But in my view, this is not the worst part of it. I hold it to be even more disturbing that the distorted war games have the effect of destroying their interest for the wide circle of officers involved. Everybody has the feeling that it doesn't matter what you do, a higher destiny controls the business and brings it one way or another to the desired conclusion. Your majesty will have noticed that it becomes increasingly difficult to find officers who want to exercise command against you. This is because, everyone says, I'll only be wiped off the map. However, what I complain about most and what I must say to your majesty is that because of all this, the officer's confidence in their supreme commander is severely shaken. The officers say that the Kaiser is much too clever not to notice how everything is arranged and that he should shall turn out to win, so that must be the way he wants it. Now, the Kaiser expressed shock to Moltke that things had been arranged this way and claimed to have no idea that the war games he took part in every year were rigged. I honestly believe is, that. Yeah, I think he's just deluded. Yeah, I think that he... Yeah. I mean, it's like, given his upbringing and the fact that just no one has ever pointed anything out to him in his entire life, like yeah. it, it tracks that he's like, wait a second, I'm not fucking the coolest person that's ever I'm, I'm not the best military leader in history especially yeah. at this point where he's been in charge for so long too like no yeah. one has negged him in decades yeah not since hence peter yeah exactly uh ugh. yeah not a great thing no now, from an early age wilhelm ii had been obsessed with warships like most boys but unlike most boys he came up to own a nation and he was able to indulge in his obsession with naval boats. This quickly became a problem. See, England's thing was being the best at having a navy. Since they were a tiny country with a very tiny army, the Royal Navy was really the only thing that ensured Great Britain's safety. Germany was the unquestioned military master of Europe, and the only reason that Britain didn't worry more was that they had naval supremacy. But in 1897, Wilhelm made an admiral named Alfred von Tirpitz the Secretary of the Navy. Now, his reasons for this were simple. Tirpitz was good at praising the Kaiser and making him feel included in naval decisions. Mm-hmm. Tirpitz had realized on their first meeting that the Kaiser, quote, did not live in the real world and had discovered that he could very easily manipulate the emperor by painting a lurid picture of a gallant and unstoppable high seas fleet. In 1897, the year after the Kaiser's disastrous Kruger telegram where he praised people for killing British soldiers, no. Germany passed its first naval bill announcing a massive expansion of the fleet. Coming a year after the Kaiser praised one of Britain's enemies for defeating her soldiers, this was not seen as a friendly move. No way. According to John... (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
According to John Satir, uh, a professor at the University of Virginia, quote, the Kaiser often indignantly denied that Germany was challenging Britain's domination of the seas, but there is clear evidence that this was in fact the aim of Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz, whom he had made Secretary of the Navy in 1897. Mm -hmm. When in 1904, Britain settled its outstanding disputes with France, the Kaiser, at Bülow's suggestion, went to Tangier the following year to challenge France's position in Morocco by announcing German support for Moroccan independence. His hopes of thereby showing that Britain was of no value as an ally to France were disappointed at the 1906 Algiers Conference, in which the Germans were forced to accept French predominance over Morocco. In 1908, William caused great excitement in Germany by giving, after a visit to England, a tactless interview to the Daily Telegraph, telling his interviewer that large sections of the German people were anti-English. He had sent the text beforehand to Bülow, who had probably neglected to read it, and who defended his master very lamely in the Reichstag. This led Wilhelm to play a less prominent role in public affairs, and, feeling that he had been betrayed by Bülow, he replaced him with Theobald von Bethmann Holweg. Bethmann's attempts to reach agreement with Britain failed because Britain would not promise neutrality in a war between Germany and France unless Germany would limit its fleet. This the Kaiser interprets refused to do. So there's a chance to stop Britain from coming in against Germany in World War I, uh-huh. but he has to not build a shitload of boats. And the Kaiser really wants a shitload of toy boats. I mean, and he's one. I, and, and again, you can track that way the fuck back. Yeah, this man loves yeah. his boats. He loves his fucking boats. Jesus. Now, that Moroccan crisis that was talked about in the quote above very nearly resulted in World War I breaking out in 1906. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that case, the Kaiser and everyone were lucky that cooler heads were able to pull Europe's fat out of the fire. But mm-hmm. the fact that things had gotten that close was evidence that the Kaiser's utter lack of competent ministers and gut-focused foreign policy was basically the world's deadliest game of dice. The series of bad decisions that would lead the world into blood-soaked calamity started in 1909, when Austria-Hungary announced the formal annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. These provinces had been administered by Vienna since 1878, but they were formerly part of the Ottoman Empire. When the Young Turk Rebellion swept the Ottoman Empire and imposed a constitution on the Sultan, Austria-Hungary saw it as a chance to right what they saw as a historical wrong. Now, the Ottoman Empire was allied with Germany, and that alliance was one of Wilhelm's very few successes. But the Kaiser was unhappy with the Young Turk Revolution, because the constitution they forced on the Sultan was made an imitation of Great Britain, and Wilhelm took a fence to this. Mm. Backing Austria-Hungary in this was an odd decision, especially given the fact that one of Wilhelm's later schemes was to try and win the Muslim world over to his banner. And we're going to talk about that, but before we talk about how Kaiser Wilhelm tried to win over the Muslims, Uh let's talk about how these products and services are going to try to win over your dollars. Ayo! Smooth transition as usual, Robert. Maybe my best, yeah. (laughs) Products! The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Huh. Now, we're talking about Kaiser Wilhelm's attempt to make all the Muslims love him. Huh. Uh, that, that may seem weird, but there's logic behind it. See, the British Empire ruled a huge chunk of the Muslim world, uh, and the French Empire did as well. And most of those Muslims were unhappy with this fact. Mm-hmm. If Wilhelm could earn their loyalty, he thought, it would provide him with another weapon to use against England. Friendship with the Ottomans also helped counter Germany's isolation, which was only a thing because Wilhelm sucked at diplomacy. Mm -hmm. In 1905, he said this, In the present very tense circumstances, when we stand almost alone in the face of great coalitions which are being formed against us, our last trump card is Islam and the Mohammedan world. So Wilhelm saw the Young Turks and their Anglo-friendliness as an attack on his hard-won courtship of their empire. So Mm -hmm. he threw them under the bus to support Austria-Hungary's ambitions. This trend of supporting Austria-Hungary, regardless of what it did, would prove to be all of Europe's undoing. As Roll's biography notes... From then onwards, Kaiser Wilhelm ardently supported his allies' initiative and, as usual, overshot the mark in his martial enthusiasm. When the possibility of war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia loomed, he exclaimed, If only it would start! He was fully aware of the danger that Germany could be drawn into a war against France and Russia by a Balkan conflict. Thirteen years earlier, on November 1895, Wilhelm II had assured the Austro-Hungarian ambassador, Count uh, Ladislaw von... I'm not going to try to pronounce this fucker's name. The Austro-Hungarian ambassador, quite plainly, that he would stand at Austria-Hungary's side with all the forces at my disposal, without any further inquiry as to whether there's any cause for war that exists 
exists in our accordance with our Treaty of Alliance. Mm. Uh, your all-highest sovereign, Franz Joseph, may be quite sure that if at any moment the position of Austro-Hungarian monarchy is at issue, my entire fighting forces will be immediately and unconditionally at his disposal. <sighs> so the Kaiser gives Austria-Hungary a blank check to do whatever they want. And it's uh, this would wind up probably being the key mistake most responsible for plunging Europe into the First World War. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to be the popular opinion. Yeah, yeah. When Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a Serbian partisan in the summer of 1914, it made Austria's war against Serbia inevitable. Russia was bound to come to Serbia's defense, and the Kaiser had repeatedly promised, loudly and publicly, to back Austria-Hungary in any such war. Mm -hmm. Now, there'd been another Balkan crisis in 1912 and 13 that had almost led Europe off a cliff into war, but again, cooler heads had talked things down. This time, however, in 1914, there were fewer cooler heads available. For one thing, the Kaiser's best friend, Eulenburg, was no longer in the picture. A complex blackmail plot, orchestrated in part by pro-war elements in the German government, had been executed against Eulenburg. The chief cause for this was Eulenburg's pacifism. Once he was out of the picture, the Kaiser had no friends close to him who actually cared about him as a human being. Eulenburg was a lickspittle, but he was a lickspittle who legitimately had Wilhelm's best interests at heart and didn't want a war. Sorry, can you unpack the term lickspittle? Yeah, he's he's a sycophant. He's somebody who just is going to praise the leader and not going to question them too much. Is that your but, word or is that someone else's no, word? No, 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 no. That's a that's a common word. Yeah. Well, says you. I learned it from the I learned it from the Simpsons. Says, "Oh, okay. <laughs> well, fine." Now, Continue. with Eulenburg gone, the Kaiser's next best friend was Prince Max Egon of Baden, who was closely related to the Emperor of Austria-Hungary, which, of course, had drawn the Kaiser close to the Austrian royal family, mm -hmm. uh, which made him make more and more dumb promises. I'm, I'm simplifying things here by quite a lot because we only have so much time, but I think this paints the essential picture of what went on to bring Wilhelm to a point where he was willing to make these bad, bad, bad calls. I mean, it is kind of remarkable just hearing it all out in order, like how long yeah. a massive conflict was avoided like that yeah there's been there's so many close scrapes before something actually starts yep 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 and yeah there were a lot of other things going on one of them was cold ugly math the german general staff had this fabulous plan cooked up by schlieffen to win a two-front war in europe and they'd kept careful tabs on both the russian and french armies and they'd calculated that 1914 was basically the best year possible for them to have a war like this if it was inevitable which they thought it was mm -hmm. because both nations had started revamping their field armies so this exact sequence of events that led to the outbreak of hostilities in World War I is too long a story to fit in at the end of an episode, and Kaiser <laughs> Wilhelm's exact level of blame is heavily debated to this day. Um, Rolf's book paints him as an eager belligerent, wringing his hands in anticipation. Um, he was not excited for war, precisely, but he was excited for a major diplomatic victory that would humble Russia and Britain without a shot being fired. Well, sure, but he understood that mommy. fighting... Yeah, exactly. He yeah. understood fighting might result, and he was willing to take that risk, but he didn't want it to come to that. Mm. He attempted to mediate between Austria and Serbia, and was briefly optimistic of peace once the Serbians yielded to most of Austria's demands, but then his ally decided to go to war anyway, and the Kaiser backed him still. Now, Vanderkist's biography paints a more reticent picture of Wilhelm. His belligerent words and threats of violence were the same sort of impulsive passing fancies that had steered him his entire life. He was a rich kid with poor impulse control, but he ultimately didn't want war. And when it came, he was horribly anxious over the whole affair. Writing years later, Bulow recalled, 
no German and above all, no English pacifist was filled with a profounder or more honest love of peace than was William II. It was his own and our misfortune that his words and his gestures never coincided with his real attitude in the manner. When he boasted or even threatened people in words, it was often because he wanted to allay his own timidity. I think that's right. Yeah. He's like, uh, he's an awkward, sad, insecure kid who winds up boasting and threatening because he doesn't, he's fundamentally insecure. And because he's a crowned head of a nation, it helps lead to war. I feel like, yeah, that does seem yeah. like kind of the story of World War One in a lot of ways where it's like yeah. the... You know, the social conflicts are generally directing stuff, but then the f- fucked up inbred leaders are, you know, able to be manipulated accordingly. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was a, there was a big debate and has been for and it still continues as to who is responsible for World War One. The nation of Germany was forced to take responsibility right. uh, in the Treaty of Versailles, which was not fair. Um, mm. Germany and the Kaiser are not mostly responsible for World War One because there's so much blame to be shared by different nations. Sure. But you could make a strong case that the single individual with the largest share of the blame is Kaiser Wilhelm II. You could yeah. make that case. Yeah, I mean, and it was like yeah. he, he was. I it, it feels like his whole life is setting him up to do this level of to fuck, fuck up. up in too. Vi- yeah, exactly. You can see yeah. it coming from so far away. It's infuriating. Yeah. Now, once war was joined, the Kaiser was hopeful that it would be a short, relatively bloodless affair and would leave the overall map of Europe relatively unchanged. He's not a Hitler type guy. He doesn't want to conquer France and he doesn't want to own and hold Belgium forever. He wants to move through Belgium and then eventually leave. He wants to beat France in a war and then sign a treaty with them, take a little bit more of their land maybe, but he wants France to still exist. Yeah. He doesn't really want to destroy England as a, as a nation. He doesn't want to conquer. He doesn't want to conquer the entire world, you know? No, he, he just, just wants, wants to fuck to, his mom. He wants to fuck his mom, and he wants to be seen as a military hero. <laughs> I mean, don't we all, in a way? Yeah. Now, yeah, we all, in a way, do. Yeah. Now, Wilhelm believed he'd be able to arrange peace when it was necessary uh, at basically any point by just working things out one-on-one with his royal cousins. Mm-hmm. He noted that mere democracies could never make a peace conference work because war was a royal sport to be indulged in by hereditary monarchs and concluded at their will. Oh. This was part of the idea about war at the time which was that um, war between kings never is that bad because kings are all friends at the end. And, you know, our soldiers will kill each other for a while, but I don't want you to lose your crown. I don't want things to be that bad for you. We're just having a spat. And, you know, once this is concluded satisfactorily, we can go back to being friends. Right. This I mean, is Wilhelm's very... idea at the start of this. Yeah. Well, because he's, yeah, because he's like talking with his cousins. Like, yeah, he's, exactly. It's like being, yeah, with just no awareness for the fact that there is a rest of the world that this affects yeah and this is not how things worked out um no and world Wait, war one no? was instant no, no 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 like a quarter of a million germans die in the first week of fighting oh um, shit it, like it's it's like hundreds of thousands of people are dead as soon as the fighting starts yeah and the kaiser you know as the situation grows more serious the kaiser is very quickly sidelined by his generals he actually had almost no role in the conduct of the war throughout the vast majority of it right um it was basically ceremonial you know he'd address factory workers and soldiers and he spent a lot of his time on vacations at his farm Mm-hmm. Germany increasingly became a military dictatorship, and by the end of it, the Kaiser was as much of a figurehead as the King of England. And of course, when Oops. the war ended in yeah, when the war ended in German defeat and seventeen million deaths, Wilhelm II was forced to abdicate and flee the country. 
He spent the rest of his life in Dorn in the Netherlands, living the quiet life of a country gentleman and a global pariah until his death in 1941 from being old as shit. In the end, I think the best epitaph for this man was written by journalist Charles Lowe, a foreign correspondent for the Times. He called Wilhelm, quote, the chief creator of the war spirit, which he found it impossible to exercise or resist, and was thus, so to say, devoured by his own offspring. For at the last moment, when shrinking from the results of his own creative handiwork, he allowed the sword, in his own phrase, to be thrust into his hand, which was just as much as if he had drawn it of his own accord, thus proving himself to be a weak-willed and criminal ruler, the most nefarious of his kind who ever sat upon a throne there it is that hand comparison again sorry you yeah. hate to see it yeah. you hate to see yeah. it the hand all, is back. it all comes back to the fucking hands oh always back to hands with this guy well yeah you know what what a coward that was uh set up to be a, a fucking loser that would cost millions of people their lives yep 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 <sighs> I'm, and that's why mo- monarchists are the dumbest people in the world <laughs> yeah they're horrible in there and and i and i hate that there's usually an in to feel kind of bad for them because you're like oh you're well why would you not be horrible why would oh, no, you I be mean, good monarchs like p- the monarchs themselves like i absolutely you you have to have sympathy for a guy like Wilhelm because like fuck man there's no good ending to this story right but like the people who want to go back to having a monarchy uh, i i the, baffles me <laughs> i can't figure i'm like do you just like tabloids like where you like fancy costumes that's what this shit's about it's i mean like you can still have that there's a lot of people that'll wear a lot of fancy you should just start watching drag race if you're a marcus just start watching drag race you'll get you'll you'll get what you want and then so are you yeah sorry no no that's that's the end of my call to action for the monarchists has your level of sympathy or feeling about kaiser wilhelm changed at all over the course of these episodes i honestly my sympathy for him went up like i knew i knew i knew that everyone you know all all the monarchy like that were involved in the beginning of world war one were uh dumb as rocks you know but dumb as a bag of dead horses but the but the specificity of yeah like how how that how they even got that far is oh it it just sucks it sucks i you know he just wanted to (laughs) his mom to be in love with him he just wanted to fuck his mom's hand and get a medal Ugh, i i i feel for her and i feel for germany and that yeah God, that there. I'm feeling. I'm not feeling as like indignant and angry as I usually am at the end of of this. I'm just feeling empty. I feel like a husk, Robert. Yeah, like an absolute husk right now. I watched an interesting movie on Netflix last night called The Exception, which is based on a book called The Kaiser's Last Kiss, and it's it's a fictional story about. Mm-hmm. Uh, a German SS officer who um, is the head of Wilhelm's bodyguard when Germany conquers uh, uh, the country where he's staying um, at the start of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And it's also about this like British spy. And it's it, the, the, the movie is more sympathetic towards Wilhelm um, than I think the book is. The, okay. bo- the guy who wrote the book had like has a very deep knowledge of the man. It's a really it's a fun it's an interesting book that I think gives a good a very fair um like accounting of the man's personality and doesn't make him into a demon or a good guy. Okay. Like he's just like one of the phrases that it says about him is that he was uh half genius and half child. Um, hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, and says he's there's another one where he said, oh, do, sorry. We, do we feel he was a genius in any way is that is that uh do we give him that i don't i didn't see that i didn't see it yeah you i know, gotta I, say I, I didn't see I, it there were some parts like his his understanding of labor rights and like the um like that sort of thing like he was really good about certain things throughout his reign but he was on the whole not a good leader but he was um he was an like it, uh, the point this guy's making is that the the things about him that he wasn't smart about led him to make a lot of his worst decisions like that yeah. mustache um, like, like i mean that mustache yeah when you're full of yes men uh, you know when you're surrounded by yes men who won't tell you you're dumb as shit you end up with that mustache and that life <laughs> yeah 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 there's 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 a lot of good quotes in that book i i'm i'm reading the book right now uh, and it's fun um so maybe check that out if you want more Kaiser Wilhelm in your life. <laughs> um, but Hot yeah, ad. man, that's a hard. He 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 he. If you'll pardon the phrase, he drew a a, a rough hand in he, life. Oh, don't uh, say, don't mention hands in front of him. He loses and, it. And then he played that hand for shit. <laughs> like, oh God! And then he's just like shaking his operational yeah. fist at the sky. You hate to see he, it. He might be the worst at a job that anyone's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. Like really, really bad at this being the Kaiser. why you shouldn't just be given the most consequential no. jobs. Not um, a job that should have existed. <laughs> nope. Certainly not. <laughs> and you get the feeling if he'd been a ceremonial monarch like the King of England is today, uh-huh. he'd have been great at it. He loved marching around and wearing uniforms. He loved outfits. And, yeah. As I just say, he he's loved like, outfits. He's yeah. an Instagram monarch. Yeah, he would have been very happy if he'd never had to make a real decision. He, if he was just posting fit checks every day, like he yeah. would be happy as a little clam. First I, posting about the Russian army, fine. <laughs> First posting about his mom. Yeah, just think yeah. another pic of me and mama. Uh, mama. Yeah, no, what a, you know, you know, monarchists, um, you're idiots. You're dumb. You're on notice. You're dumb. See you in the comment section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna really bring the monarchist listeners behind the bastards out of the woodwork on this board, folks. Debate um, me. Yeah, it's one of those things. I had this opinion before I started doing this research that kings were basically the same as dictators, um, and I don't feel that way anymore. In part because of all this reading about how hopelessly everyone watched this guy slouch towards being in power and couldn't stop it, which like yeah. a dictator seizes power generally. Um, and like, there's not really a question about it. Like they take the power and even if everyone, like a lot of people know they're bad at it, like they take it. Whereas with this, everyone's like, yeah, this guy's going to be a disaster. Too bad. There's nothing to do about it. Right. (laughs) That's the thing is like, it seems like if he had had been, if he had been given a way out where that wouldn't have resulted in eternal shame upon him and Mm -hmm. his family, he absolutely would have taken it. If he could still have been the Kaiser, but not have had to make, maybe, I don't know, maybe he He was also really arrogant. He just wanted to be a fashion king. Yeah, I do think he he wanted to be a military power too, though. And like, I don't think he wanted to in that, I don't think he was inherently a military kind of guy, but because his whole family had raised him to believe that it's shameful to be a Prussian and not be a great warrior. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's fucked, man. It's a bummer of a story. It's it's definitely fucked. I hate that I feel for him, but I do. You kind of can't. It doesn't mean he didn't get millions of people killed and yeah. isn't a piece of shit. But like, it also means that like, well, fuck you. You plug anybody into that job, 
what with ha- that kind of upbringing, how how does it end well? How does it? Possi- you know? Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a. I blame society, Robert. I I blame very specific assholes, not society in general. I blame I a bunch of shitty people, including we live Queen in Victoria. A society. <laughs> That's my think, whole point. I, I blame George Hinspeter, Queen Victoria, uh, uh, the Empress Augusta, um, and a couple of other terrible assholes. Um, okay. And some bad, bad doctors. I, I blame the, the doctors. Oh, I blame the arm stretcher. Whoever made yeah, the that arm didn't help. stretcher. <laughs> that didn't help. They really have a lot to answer for. All right. Because yeah. it didn't work. First of yeah. all, and second of all, it was deeply humiliating, and 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 you can sort of trace the death of many people to the humiliation from the arm stretcher. So, um, buy an arm stretcher. Uh, by the way, this podcast is supported <laughs> what by if arm stretchers. Ad came on for an uh, yeah. arm stretcher right now. Oh, boy. is your child the Prince of Prussia? Is his arm gimp? <laughs> buy an out. arm stretcher. <laughs> Stretch it out, of course. <laughs> good lord oh boy yeah he is you do have to you can't really understand him unless you understand that he was also a disabled man um who was abused by a bigoted medical establishment right by by by, and and there was like no option or ability for him to be accepted as as he was it's yeah it sucks it fucking sucks you know what doesn't suck jamie what your pluggables that's well wait and see no I'm kidding they're great um you can follow me on twitter at jamie christ or no at jamie loftus help uh you can listen to I, i'm releasing a short form podcast called my year in mensa that's about uh my horrible year in the mensa organization uh, so excited i'm very i robert your voice is in it Thank I was, you. I was editing it in just yesterday. It comes out on Thanksgiving. It's a full blown nightmare. I, I hope people listen to it. And uh, yeah, then you can listen to the Bechdel cast every Thursday. And that's and those are my pluggies. Listen to the Bechdel cast. Listen to my year in Mensa, which is Jamie's year in Mensa, not my it's year. My, in Mensa. Not your year, but you know, not, you you could if you wanted to. But uh, I, you know, yeah. I, if, I no no I could not. Um, <laughs> Find us on the internet at BehindTheBastards.com where we'll have all the sources for this. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at BastardsPod. Um, and find some room in your heart to buy a neck-stretching machine for the young infant child in your life today and ensure they grow up just like the Kaiser. Uh, I gotta go get an, a stretch in right now. Right after mm-hmm. I write my mom the scariest letter I've ever written oh, yeah, in my life. Yeah. Everybody write your moms about their sexy, sexy hands. Everyone writing about their mom's sexy hands. No shame. Just don't hit send. It's Some that shame. simple. It's Some that shame. Robert is pro-shaming people horny for their mom's hands. I'm a little more open-minded. <laughs> That's the fucking episode. Bye. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 